Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Pat Farabell, author of Disastrous Floods and the Demise of Steel in Johnstown. Pat Farbaugh is the author of Disastrous Floods and the Demise of Steel in Johnstown. Uh, how did Johnstown become a center of iron and steel? Thanks for having me, Phil. I appreciate the opportunity to talk uh, about Johnstown. It really is uh, a place that steel has a lot of history in. It was uh, David McAuliffe, the renowned historian, his first book he wrote was The Johnstown Flood. And in that book, he mentioned the age of steel can fairly be said to have begun here. Uh, and it was an important point on the mainline canal system. And it was at a place where you had bituminous coal in the mountains above, uh, and it quickly flourished. It employed 7,000 men in 1860, uh, sh shortly before uh, the beginning of the Civil War. Uh, and it also has some railroad history as well. The mainline canal system came from the eastern part of the state, uh, and it would uh, you know, reach all the way to Johnstown, but in the area between Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, and Blair County, and Johnstown, which sits in Cambria County, the terrain was too rugged. Uh, it was, I just drove over that mountaintop today, and uh, the first uh, some of the first rails in our country were laid uh, through that area. And the first uh, tunnel, the uh, Staple Bend Tunnel, the first railroad tunnel in the U.S. was put there. But it was a strategic location. You had the confluence of the rivers, the little uh, Connemaw and the Stony Creek there to form the Connemaw, which runs into the Allegheny and uh, quickly emerged on that mainline canal system as an important transfer point. So talk a little bit more about that canal system. Uh, uh, maybe people don't know a lot about that. Can you talk a little bit about its history and what it connected? Absolutely. So you had the Erie Canal system, which commerce quickly blossomed on a lot of spots along the Erie Canal route, and the southern part of the state uh, wanted to also uh, have a, a means of transporting product. And so the mainline canal system, uh, when it took up... Uh, when they began building that across the bottom part of the state, they couldn't get to Pittsburgh because of that rugged terrain. And so, uh, again, the railroad history in that area uh, was, uh, was very important. And to get into the first flood, uh, you had the water. You have the Little Connemaw uh, and the Stony Creek River that form uh, the Connemaw River in Johnstown. And you had a labor pool. You had natural resources in the coal and the mountaintops above, uh, and you had Johnstown that sat on this confluence of rivers to be able to move goods to Pittsburgh. So how did having this industry in that area affect the, the geography of it? For example, uh, deforestation or how it affected uh, the landscape? Well, there's no question that, uh, again, uh, gravity played a big part in what happened in Johnstown, but uh, there's no question that the mining uh, of the coal and the mountaintops above uh, exacerbated some of the challenges uh, in the city. You had, uh, again, you had the, uh, the trees that would absorb much of the water as they were taken off of the ridges above the city. Uh, 
to uh, get the coal out of the ground, it created a situation that uh, would obviously prove very problematic down the road. Now, Johnstown, of course, is famous for its flood in 1889. Uh, what was the town like in the years leading up to that? Very working class. Uh, it was initially known as Schoenstatt. A man by the name of Joseph Schoenz uh, is credited with founding the city uh, in 1769. Uh, it's uh, very much working class. Uh, it, uh, uh, the, the people in that area were farmers. They were coal miners, uh, and they worked in the mills, of course, producing the iron, and then eventually uh, the steel. And as the railroad industry took off, uh, a lot of the people in that area would also be uh, working in that as well. But uh, a lot of subsistence farming, people that raised their families on the crops that they grew, and farming uh, remains uh, very much a staple in uh, sort of the tri-county area. Johnstown is in southern Cambria County, uh, but to the south is Somerset County, to the east is Blair County, and, and even to this day, not the large-scale farming, but still small farming today, and, and that was uh, the case in addition to the ironworks uh, that a lot of people, a lot of families uh, were fed on the work of farmers and iron producers. Now in the 1880s, uh, the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club was established. What was that? So the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, once rails were laid all the way uh, across the state, the canal system was no longer needed. And so the Pennsylvania Railroad sold a dam that had once been used in the canal system, the South Fork Dam, that sits above Johnstown, uh, sold it to a group of investors, uh, all connected in some way through Andrew Carnegie, the point person on uh, the transaction was a man by the name of Benjamin Ruff, but uh, they sold the South Fork Dam uh, to this group, the Pennsylvania Railroad did, and it was Pittsburgh business leaders in the iron industry that wanted to have a getaway. Andrew Carnegie had owned a home uh, in Crescent, Pennsylvania, which is also in Cambria County. It sits in the mountains uh, above Johnstown named Braemar, and uh, he had fallen in love with the Alleghenies. And, uh, won't go into detail, but his mother uh, passed in Braemar. He carried that, uh, th those thoughts with him and uh, didn't want to go back to that location, but he loved the Alleghenies. He loved the Laurel Highlands. And so when this uh, opportunity to buy uh, the South Fork Dam became possible, he envisioned uh, just what they called it, a hunting and fishing club in which they uh, wanted to get away from sort of the grime and, and the business world, but not have to travel too far. Uh, and so uh, they purchased that and uh, they began to build their club. They would make changes to the dam that would ultimately prove catastrophic. Uh, they lowered the dam. Uh, it was carriage travel at the time. They put a road across it. They widened it, put a road across it for carriage travel. Uh, they removed some runoff pipes, uh, and they also had placed some screens in the dam. They had uh, black bass actually brought in for fishing, uh, fishing and hunting club, uh, and uh, they, it, was, it was a resort for the business leaders of Pittsburgh. Now in the book, you quote an engineer at the time saying the, the reconstruction of the dam was not remotely consonant with the elemental principles of engineering. What, uh, did, did they not consult an expert on, uh, on the renovations they were making? To my knowledge, no. Uh, Daniel Morrell, uh, he was the head of the Cambria Ironworks. He was a politician in Johnstown. He was... Uh, not the mayor, but uh, for all intents and purposes, he ran the city. He had uh, an engineer uh, that was on staff at the Cambria Ironworks, a man by the name of John Fulton, 
contact Benjamin Ruff Benjamin, and, and asked to inspect the dam, uh, acquiesced, uh, Ruff acquiesced, allowed him to come. He reported back to his boss, Morrell, uh, that uh, he felt that there were problems with the changes uh, that were made. And again, I don't think that that fishing and hunting club, there was no malice. Uh, they did not believe that the changes that they were making was going to uh, compromise the integrity of that dam. No one could foresee what would happen, but uh, we'll get to this part. Obviously, they were vilified uh, in the national and the international press. Uh, I don't know if they consulted engineers, uh, but I know that John Fulton, who worked for Daniel Morrell, had serious concerns. Now you also write that, that it began springing, springing leaks after the renovations. Uh, at, at some point, did they take any measures at all to try to address some of these issues? To my knowledge, no. Uh, Daniel Morrell, he actually, Morrell joined the club. He wanted to keep an eye on what was going on at the club. Uh, so he actually uh, sought membership and was granted membership in the club. And, and I don't want to suggest, Phil, that they let the dam go unrepaired whatsoever, uh, but they never made uh, the changes that were recommended by Morrell and Fulton, significant structural changes. So what was the, the specific weather event that would ultimately lead to the flood? So there was a storm, and this would actually happen a couple of times, there were storms that formed across the Midwest. The jet stream brings storms. Uh, it formed in late May, uh, on May 30th, uh, right, this is 1869, so not long after the conclusion of the Civil War. Uh, May 31st was not known as Memorial Day at that time, but rather Decoration Day, and there were people at cemeteries honoring uh, those lost during the Civil War uh, on May 30th. On the morning of May 31st, 1889, a caretaker who worked uh, at the club year-round, of course the uh, business leader from Pittsburgh would come and go, but a man by the name of Elias Unger got up, saw the heavy rains uh, that had uh, they had started the afternoon of the 30th uh, and picked up it in their intensity uh, overnight, and uh, he was worried. He quickly assembled a team. Uh, they tried several different strategies the morning of May 31st. They tried to, it's an earthen dam, so they tried to mound dirt uh, to increase its height. Uh, that was not successful. They tried to create some places where the uh, water that was building pressure against the earthen wall could be alleviated. Uh, that failed, and uh, eventually Unger uh, resigned himself to the fact that this dam was going to give way. He told the crew to uh, get to higher ground. He sent someone down to Mineral Point, which is on the way down to Johnstown, uh, to get a message, to try to get a message to the city uh, of the impending dam's failure. Uh, the storm had knocked out telegraph lines, and so his message only made it as far as Mineral Point. And around 3.10 p.m. on May 31st, 1889, that dam gave way. 20 million tons of water uh, went barreling down toward the city of Johnstown. Uh, how far is the dam from Johnstown? 15, 16 miles. And how long did it take the water to reach the city? It jammed up twice. Uh, the water, uh, one thing that, that I was struck by, uh, and they share many photos in the book, the uh, Johnstown Area Heritage Association, gentleman Richard Berker who wrote the foreword. Uh, they have a wonderful collection, and most of the photos uh, come from that collection. The one thing that struck me was the power of Mother Nature, the power of the water. Um, it took 
it, it, it blocked it blocked up twice. It blocked up at the Connemaw Viaduct as well as the Stone Bridge, which is a sandstone railroad bridge. Uh, so that slowed down its path. But to answer your question, uh, roughly 30 minutes until it was in downtown Johnstown. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, people don't realize uh, when you have something like a flood, uh, people don't die by drowning many a times. Uh, many uh, people were impaled. Uh, you have to understand, this, this is not only water that is rushing toward the city. It picked up locomotives, picked up trees, uh, obviously the ironworks at different locations, uh, picked up wire, uh, picked up cables, uh, picked up homes. I spoke uh, at a museum in Youngstown, Ohio, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, a gentleman who I spoke with there, his great-grandfather was five years old at the time of the 1889 Johnstown flood, and his family had put him on the roof of a house. And he rode it like a ship. Uh, he lost some family members, uh, but his great-grandfather uh, rode it, and, and they found him eventually. So to answer your question, it took about a half hour to 40 minutes to get downtown. Uh, again, there were people who drowned. There were people who were impaled. There were also, uh, ironically, in a flood uh, at uh, the Stone Bridge, one of the places where the water blocked, a fire burned for three days, uh, and many people lost their lives during a flood in a fire. Now, the, uh, the flood ended up killing 2,209 people, including 99 entire families. Uh, it must have been devastating for that community. No doubt. It was, uh, and even if you were fortunate enough to still have your life on the morning uh, of June 1st or late in the day on May 31st, in so many instances, every earthly possession that you owned was gone. Uh, uh, the city was, uh, was decimated. It was... Uh, Woodvale was especially hard hit. You mentioned uh, roughly 2,200 in the community of Woodvale, 1,100, roughly half uh, of the folks who lost their lives were from that community. It was surreal. It was, uh, it looked, it doesn't look like, uh, like anywhere on earth in the aftermath of something that catastrophic. Now you've probably looked at photos of the aftermath. Uh, what, what strikes you when you look at those photos? A couple of things. One is, the power of Mother Nature, as I mentioned, uh, just the way uh, roads, railroad tracks, bridges are gone where they once uh, were. And you look at a scene that you've driven by or you've gone by hundreds of times and you wouldn't be able to recognize it if you were blindfolded uh, and taken uh, to that location. The other thing, Phil, is the randomness of uh, where things pile up. Uh, you would have, uh, again, it wasn't cars travel in 1889, uh, but, but carriages with uh, homes, with, uh, you know, pieces of bridges, uh, with bodies, sadly, uh, with uh, the remains of animals, because I mentioned the farming community was very vibrant. And so the randomness of the after scene in each of the three major floods, there were there have been plenty of floods, I read about three of them, uh, but the randomness of, the, uh, of where debris uh, ended up, uh, but then also what were in those piles of debris. So uh, how did people begin to clean up? That's one of the things uh, that I, I think is so uh, inspirational. I, this, I mean, obviously the story is, uh, 
is one of tragedy. Uh, there is no question about it. But uh, each time, uh, and it speaks to, I, I'm from the area. And actually, one of the reasons that I took on this project, uh, well, a couple of reasons. One is I mentioned David McCullough. His book on the 1889 Johnstown flood told that story in rich detail. Uh, but I also thought that there was more of the story that needed to be told because of the floods that would follow and also the steel industry. It's the iron and then the steel industry and it's ebbs and flows. And uh, they cleaned up and they rebuilt because of the perseverance of the people. Uh, I write in one of the footnotes in the book about my grandfather, John Earl Boland, and he was a miner for a Bethlehem steel coal mine uh, for uh, much of his mining career. He was a miner from 1932 to 70, and uh, in 1962, in a community north of Johnstown, a little town called Revlock, he fractured his back. And uh, he was, uh, he had lost the use of one of his feet. He had lost uh, the ability, uh, his uh, sensory uh, in the tips of his fingers. Um, so he uh, came up with strategies to rebuild those nerve endings. And, and I'm going to, this answers your question in a roundabout way. Uh, he was back underground and he, he operated a shuttle car uh, and a rocket fell on him uh, and, and fractured his back. But he was back underground in six months. And my pap, uh, pappy we called him, he was indicative of the, you dust yourself off, you pick yourself up. And dating all the way back to 1889, May and June of 1889, uh, that's what the people did. Uh, they buried their dead, they mourned them, uh, but they, they had work to do. Uh, every, there weren't 50 states in the United States at the time, every state sent aid. Uh, Clara Barton, who had founded the Red Cross in 1881, uh, the flood was May uh, 31st, she was in Johnstown on June 5th. A team of Red Cross uh, staffers, they stayed through October. Uh, different nations around the world, because the story had gotten national attention. Uh, as well as international attention. It was uh, the storyline, and I think it's more intricate uh, than the way it was played out in the, in the press, locally, nationally, internationally, was that these rich elites came, built this getaway in the mountains above this city with no regard for the changes that they made, and this dam gave way. And so it was painted as these robber barons and these working class people in the city below. And, and it, it's it's richer than that. I think that's a black and white story. But that attention that uh, was received around the world really helped Johnstown. A lot of people sent aid, uh, nations around the world. Uh, and incredibly, Johnstown was back on its feet uh, very quickly uh, in terms of the Cambria Ironworks. They were back up and running in fairly short order after that catastrophic 1889 flood. So what happened to the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club? Well, you might guess uh, they weren't... Uh, they really didn't want to be around that area uh, after what had happened. Uh, membership broke up entirely, uh, I believe it was nine years uh, after the 1889 flood. Uh, it was, uh, it's, it's now a, a national museum, the actual location of the South Fork Dam. Uh, but the, the members uh, who had founded it, uh, they never went back. And actually, interestingly, Andrew Carnegie, who they were all connected, he never uh, had occasion to go to the club even before the dam broke. Actually never made the trip uh, to uh, the, the resort that uh, he had you know, rather rallied these people around to purchase. But, yeah, they did not use it, and it uh, you know, would become a must-see uh, for people passing through the area because of its notoriety. 
So uh, you mentioned that the iron industry uh, recovered, uh, Cambria Iron Works recovered and started uh, working. So as uh, the clock ticked into the 20th century, at, uh, how did the steel industry uh, transform at that point? Well, there were a couple of different uh, operators. The Cambria Iron Works had operated under that name uh, from its founding in 1852 until 1898. Then they changed their name to Cambria Steel, and they operated under that title uh, from 98, 1898 until 1916. And then uh, the Midvale Steel and Ordnance Company, which was headquartered in Philadelphia, uh, bought the holdings uh, and operated from 1916 until 1922. And then Bethlehem Steel, which I write about rather extensively in the book, in addition to uh, the ebbs and flows uh, from the floods, uh, they would operate from 1922 until 2003. And Bethlehem, under Bethlehem's watch, uh, Johnstown Blossom, they would shift from an iron producer to a steel producer. Charles Schwab, uh, he was uh, the CEO for uh, Bethlehem when it was purchased in November of 1922, when Bethlehem purchased it uh, from Midvale Steel. And he was someone that was an innovator in the steel industry. He was a forward thinker. He was someone uh, that would take chances. Uh, he put Bethlehem on the map. He was the right man at the right time with the right attitude to uh, help the steel industry blossom uh, into a, a business behemoth. And where there are mills, there's mines, uh, and the coal uh, industry blossomed as well uh, in the area above John, not so much in Johnstown, but in the mountains, actually in the mountains where I grew up, where my, uh, where my grandfather was a coal miner. And uh, under his watch, uh, Bethlehem, obviously Bethlehem is uh, headquartered in the Lehigh Valley. Johnstown was one of their most significant holdings. But under Charles Schwab's watch, Johnstown's operations would grow. Uh, its operations in the Lehigh Valley. Uh, they would open a plant in Buffalo, Lackawanna plant, Sparrows Point, New York. Uh, they would have a location out in the Pittsburgh area. There's Stilton Mills. Uh, and uh, it was booming. And, and during the war years, uh, Bethlehem produced a lot of steel uh, and found a lot of success. Charles Schwab, uh, he, he lived a big life. He was from Williamsburg, which is in Blair County, uh, before his family moved uh, to Loretto, Pennsylvania. He took chances, and those chances uh, paid off. He, at one point in his life, owned the largest private residence in New York City. Uh, it was larger than Carnegie's. Uh, Carnegie is uh, famous for saying, have you seen that police of Charlie's? It makes mine look like a shack. Uh, so he lived a large life, uh, but he rode the waves of the steel industry. He died in 1939, more than $350,000 in debt. Uh, Charles Schwab did. And uh, so he was integral to the steel industry's success, not only in Johnstown, but in the other locations for Bethlehem Steel. Now, in September of 1919, there was a major strike. Uh, what happened? The... The steel industry, right, Charles Schwab and then his successor, Eugene Grace, uh, they were staunchly anti-union. Uh, they were, like many other steel leaders, uh, Carnegie, other steel leaders, uh, they liked to control operations. They liked to have the housing, the company store, and uh, make sure that the profit margin was significant. Uh, and uh, did a very good job of that for a while. I, I sort of bookend the labor movement with the strike of 1919 in the book and the strike of 1959. The 
1919 strike, I would argue, were uh, really the first shot over the bow uh, to management that uh, labor was going to uh, make a push. And 300,000 mill workers and miners, not only in Johnstown, but around the country during that 1919 strike, honored the call. In Johnstown, 15,000 uh, walked off the job, uh, and uh, they, they hung in there as long as they could. Eventually, they uh, were granted sort of some modest concessions uh, by management, uh, but it was, uh, again, I, I equate it to a warning shot uh, to the steel leaders that uh, the miners were becoming disgruntled with uh, not having you know, discretionary income and having their lives controlled to the extent that they were by the mine companies, the steel and mine companies. How did the strike come to an end? Community pressure, really. Uh, in Johnstown, at least, I can speak to that uh, because I'm, you know, versed in that uh, through my research in the book. Uh, the, the, the sentiment was different uh, than it is today. You have people who have mixed feelings on unions. I, on my drive out, I was... Uh, you know, heard some of the sentiments from both sides in the talk radio I was listening to, but to a person almost, uh, clergy leaders and business leaders in the communities uh, criticized the mine and the mill workers for striking. The prevailing thought among business and, and religious leaders who carried some clout was that you want more discretionary income in your pocket, save. And not so much that the management the leaders of these companies should be bumping up your wages. Uh, these companies were making hand over fist, uh, but again, uh, clergy leaders were perching, preaching uh, to the members of their congregation on Sunday that you need to get off the picket lines and back to work. There was one religious leader, one, uh, at least per my research, who sided with labor, and uh, the, uh, the board at his church relieved him of his pastoral responsibility. So it was community pressure uh, that... Uh, and, and running out of money, too, to put food on the tables for their families that pushed them to end the 1919 strike. Uh, how, did, how was Johnstown affected by the great migration of African Americans from the South? There, were, there was not as many African Americans that settled in Johnstown as in other areas. But uh, the wars, uh, Bethlehem uh, and other steel producers in western Pennsylvania, they would go south. And the... African-American population grew much more slowly in Johnstown than it had uh, in other parts of the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic regions. But during World Wars I and II, Bethlehem began to uh, more aggressively pursue uh, African-Americans to fill out their labor pool. And again, because they had lost so many of uh, the people in their plants uh, to service in, in, in the war against uh, the Germans in World Wars I and II. Now, the 1920s was a time when the Ku Klux Klan was being reinvigorated around the country. Uh, was there a presence of the Klan in the Johnstown area? There was. Uh, it was, uh, like other communities, uh, it was a place uh, where uh, we had, uh, you know, discrimination and bigotry and, uh, you know, a, a wariness of the other. And there were claverns that grew uh, fairly large uh, over the course of the 1920s. It was uh, a very precipitous rise uh, in Klan activity over that period of time. And then it would drop off almost as quickly as we entered the 1930s. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that uh, Johnstown was one of the first cities in Pennsylvania to establish Clavaliers, the military secret police units of the Klan. Uh, how active were they in the town? They were. Uh, they had a presence. Uh, 
There's a book that, that came out recently that talked about uh, the mayor of Johnstown. Uh, at one point, uh, there, was, there was some violent activity, and he forced out uh, the Mexican population as well as, as, as effectively as he could, the African Americans who had migrated uh, from the area or had settled in the area. It was a, uh, it's a, it was a place where the, the Klan did have some success in organizing uh, and in generating momentum for, their, for that movement. Now, the 1930s, uh, of course, is known for the, the Great Depression. How did the Depression affect the, the steel industry and the economy in Johnstown? It really uh, sowed the seeds, continued to sow the seeds for the labor movement. Uh, the, the steel industry, I equate it to, uh, well, the iron and then the steel industry, a roller coaster. Uh, you have, much like Charles Schwab's life, the leader of Bethlehem Steel, boom and bust periods. And obviously the Great Depression, uh, the, the stock market crash, uh, it was a downturn uh, for the industry, and it created a, an opportunity for labor organizers to come in, and uh, again, people were, were struggling to make ends meet, to feed their families because uh, of the economic conditions, uh, and uh, it set the stage for what would happen. Uh, the labor boom is very much like a pendulum. Uh, management had all the cards uh, for many years, and then the strike of 1919, the Great Depression, the stock market crash uh, created space to uh, rally workers around organizing and using the power uh, of a group. Uh, and then ultimately, and, and I don't want to uh, skip ahead for, in our conversation, but uh, it would uh, result in uh, challenges for steel leaders because of the the salaries, the wages, the benefits packages, the vacation packages that they would be able to negotiate. Now, the, the second big flood you talk about in your book took place in 1936. Uh, what happened? So there were other flood events. I don't want to suggest that this was a city that has had three floods. It, uh, it sits in a valley. Uh, we talked about uh, as the coal was taken off, as uh, different... Uh, Things happened in the mountains. Uh, they didn't practice necessarily the, the proper farming techniques. Uh, so you had a lot of runoff. Uh, there were floods in 1891, two years after the, the Great Flood of 89, 1894, 07. In 1936, it's called the St. Patrick's Day Flood. Uh, there was a very, very heavy snowfall the winter, uh, December through February uh, 35 and 36. And uh, it stayed cold. So the snow, you didn't have that periodic, as we often do, you get some snow, it warms up, it melts. You had the snow accumulate, and then you had a storm form, and uh, you also had rising temperatures. And as the temperatures rose, that rain kept coming, it melted that snow. Uh, those two factors together resulted in the 36 flood. Uh, the, uh, Joseph Schantz, I mentioned, the founder of Johnstown, uh, in, a, uh, in an image that uh, was captured in a photo, a statue of Joseph Schantz was decapitated. You can see it uh, floating uh, through the water. Um, water levels downtown actually rose at a couple of locations higher than they had in the 1889 flood. Now, the terms of loss of life, loss of property wasn't nearly as catastrophic. 24 people were killed in uh, the 1936 flood, and uh, 
a lot of those lives were saved. Johnstown uh, has some signage. Uh, they have an incline plane uh, that had been used by uh, Cambria Steel, and it had been sold to the community uh, to advertise the steepest vehicular incline in the world. Uh, it was used to lift people to safety. Uh, about 2,000 people were able to get away from the rising floodwaters uh, and were carried up uh, Yoder Hill uh, to a community above Johnstown, Westmont, uh, by the use of the incline plan that, uh, without question, saved many lives that would have otherwise been lost. Now, you say in the book that on, on Washington Street, mannequins floated in the floodwaters, creating an eerie scene. What, uh, <laughs> was there a photo of that, or is there, yeah, there some was. record of it? Yeah, there was. Uh, it, was, it speaks to what I mentioned to you earlier, the unusual images uh, that you would see. The 77 flood, there were baby grand pianos that were floating on the top of the water. Uh, and then when the water recited, they rested uh, in the mud and the muck. And, and that's another thing I mentioned, and, and again, not to, uh, to conjure up images in people's minds of, uh, that, are, uh, that are gruesome, but I mentioned the people losing their life uh, to being impaled. But uh, you think water, uh, when the water recedes the mud, the muck, the filth, people's basements, uh, the animal remains, the food spoilage, uh, all of those are things that uh, have to be taken care of during that subsequent cleanup. But just like 1889, scenes that seemed almost surreal, that how could this be the same place that it was the day before? Those same kinds of scenes like the mannequins floating uh, in the water, uh, you don't even, uh, you see that spot and it's hard to even recognize what it was previously. Was the city better prepared this time around? I don't think so. Uh, they hadn't done m much of anything to address uh, Johnstown's location and its problems. Now they would, after the 36 flood, they would take some measures, uh, but from uh, the, the, the primary objective, Phil, after 1889 was let's get the ironworks up and running again. Let's get back to people working uh, at their jobs. Now, after the 36 flood, right, this is the second major flood, uh, 24 people's lives are lost. Uh, president at the time is Franklin D. Roosevelt. He visits in August of 36. The flood was in March. Uh, he makes sure, FDR makes sure he gets there uh, when they're changing shifts uh, at uh, the Bethlehem Steel plant, uh, and uh, it was uh, definitely uh, to maximize uh, its, uh, you know, the political side of things. But he uh, is escorted in actually Charles Schwab's Packard limousine uh, by the mayor, Daniel Shields, uh, and the governor of Pennsylvania, George Earl, and they show him some sites uh, around the city. FDR visits, and uh, he announces a channelization project. Uh, of the rivers uh, to increase the amount of water uh, that they can handle. And this includes flood protection walls. Uh, and uh, it's uh, initiated uh, in uh, 39, finished in 1942. Uh, and it absolutely helps. Uh, it was not a project that some believed was enough to keep the city protected from floodwaters. And FDR. Uh, again, uh, he wrote a letter, thanks to the efforts of uh, the Works Progress Administration and others, your city is flood free and can now focus on the day-to-day -day activities. Uh, there was a gentleman uh, named James Bogardus who worked for, he was Pennsylvania Secretary of Forest and Waters, and he was well-versed in uh, 
some of the reasons why the city, uh, he deemed the city was not safe. And he had proposed that three reservoirs be built uh, in addition to the channelization project that FDR uh, authorized. And uh, ultimately, that was not pursued. And uh, again, it's, it, it's easy just as the, uh, to vilify the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Could they have been more, uh, obviously, more careful and more uh, erring on the side of caution? Yes, but would Bogardus's reservoirs have protected Johnstown in 1977? Perhaps, but uh, it is also important not to sort of second guess and, and, and be able to look back now and think what might have been. But a channelization project was initiated, and without question, in other serious rainfall events, uh, it worked to keep Johnstown safe. But then, of course, 1977 would come around. Now, a few years after this flood, uh, World War II comes around. You mentioned before the boom and bust cycles for the steel industry. Usually wars are big business for, for the steel industry. How did that affect this one? No doubt. World War II was, uh, proved very profitable for Bethlehem Steel. Eugene Grace, the CEO of Bethlehem Steel, who had succeeded Charles Schwab, he promised that Bethlehem Steel Corporation would produce a ship a day for the war effort and actually exceeded that goal, uh, promised FDR that uh, by uh, uh, a number of ships. Uh, it, was, it was a very lucrative time for Bethlehem Steel uh, and other uh, steel leaders, without question. Uh, how did the, was this the peak of the steel industry, or, or at what point did the steel industry peak in the United States? World War II is... Absolutely one of the peak periods. World War I would have been another. Uh, for Bethlehem Steel, World War II, specifically Bethlehem Steel, that was when they were able to generate, uh, you know, the kinds of profits that, uh, you know, they even acquiesced and, and bumped up uh, the wages of their laborers without it being the result of a strike in negotiations. And for Bethlehem Steel specifically, World War II proved the most profitable period for them. The one thing that... Uh, I think that also uh, caused was some complacency. Uh, Eugene Grace, in my judgment, uh, was not the uh, forward thinker that Charles Schwab was. Eugene Grace had recognized the pattern uh, in the steel industry that, again, analogous to a roller coaster, there's a downturn, there's going to be an upside as well. Uh, and I think to Bethlehem Steel's detriment, he was not thinking about some of the other confluence of factors that were going to ultimately uh, hurt the bottom line at his company. Was Bethlehem Steel an innovative company? Under Schwab, yes. Under Eugene Grace, no. He was someone, Grace was, he was uh, a leader that would not keep his company in the cutting edge in terms of investment capital improvements. Uh, he, as well as other members of his team, uh, and again, this is paraphrasing, but uh, we're in a position to only move or to only innovate or to only invest if it becomes necessary to do so. And I gave a presentation out at the uh, National Museum of Labor History, uh, which sits in the shadows of the casino uh, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and there was a U.S. steel leader there. And one of the things that he recalled, he was in the courtroom with these business leaders who were pleading for higher uh, barriers of entry for foreign steel. I don't think that Eugene Grace uh, 
appreciated the, the challenges that were on the rise. And one of those was foreign steel. Uh, it was able to come into the, to, to the country, be produced much more cheaply, and it would flood the industry after World War II. And uh, so, no, to answer your question, uh, I don't think that uh, under... Could, now, if the roles were reversed, if Charles Schwab was a steel leader during World War II in that period, I don't think he would have operated differently. Uh, but ultimately, substitute products, the rise of the labor movement, cheaper imported foreign steel, environmental regulations, the, now the Department of Environmental Protection, but the Department of Environmental Resources at the state level, the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level, they were requiring, uh, you know, just like we're seeing in the automobile industry now, they were requiring steel companies to produce steel more cleanly. You had a man like Eugene Grace, who uh, was very slow at the switch in terms of trying to produce coal more, steel more cleanly. He was using the open hearth furnace process when many of his rivals had switched to the basic oxygen furnace process, which is a way to produce cleaner steel. So the steel industry is going to collapse under you know, the weight of these factors, uh, but Eugene Grace probably exacerbated the problems and maybe brought them that demise about more quickly because of some of his missteps. You mentioned uh, briefly earlier the 1959 strike. Uh, how did that come about? Well, the labor leaders realized that the pendulum to use that analogy, it swung over to, uh, or I beg your pardon, the management, uh, the members of uh, management of these steel companies had realized that labor had negotiated very lucrative salaries. And you have to remember, when the iron and steel industry is booming, right, they employed a lot of people. When those people retire, you have to pay their pension plans. And so the strike of 1959 uh, was brought about uh, because they were having, Bethlehem specifically, a very, very difficult time paying the pensions for the growing number of retirees in addition to the higher wages that had been negotiated over the 40 years since the 1919 strike. Uh, and then also uh, they were uh, seeing products that were coming uh, as we became more innovated over the course of the last century. You had aluminums plastics, to a certain extent, ceramic products that were taking the place of steel. You did not need steel uh, as much. And so management had seen the way that miners, mill workers across various companies had organized together. And the 59 strike was sort of a, it was sort of a last gasp uh, at trying to reclaim some of what they had lost uh, because they saw the writing on the wall. And so they actually worked together. U.S. steel leaders, Bethlehem steel leaders, other large steel companies tried to work uh, in cooperation with one another the way the laborers did. In the end, uh, Eisenhower was president. Uh, Richard Nixon was, was brought in. In the end, uh, they were trying to do away with some of the, the roles that required a certain number of people to be in a job, even if that uh, number of people was not necessary. It was a uh, it was a, something that had been negotiated by the unions called feather bedding. And there was a clause called Clause 2B that had been negotiated in the previous labor agreement that they were trying to get rid of. And, and in the end, management lost even more ground uh, when the 59 strike was settled. And the 59 strike shut down, uh, for all intents and purposes, shut down uh, the American steel industry. And what did that do? It created a void, again, for more foreign steel to come in. So a few years after this strike, uh, the Vietnam War comes around. Again, another war that uh, did Bethlehem Steel benefit uh, from, 
from the, the emergence of this war? They did, uh, as in the, the previous conflicts that uh, the U.S. was in, World Wars I and II, uh, the Korean War uh, during uh, the early 1950s. Uh, it was a it was a period in which they were able to make some money, not the kind of money that the company generated during World Wars One and Two. But I equate it to a mirage, that it was really, uh, again, a, a, a time where they made some money, uh, but they also didn't, and again, I don't want to say to a person, but I think many, Bethlehem specifically, and I won't speak on U.S. Steel because I look at the Bethlehem Steel industry, that was the operator in Johnstown, uh, it was, uh, that roller coaster was going to stay in the dip. And Vietnam happens, and you're like, okay, we're going to have one of those peak periods again. Uh, but after Vietnam, because of some of those factors that I just mentioned to you, uh, environmental, increased environmental regulations, emergency substitute products, cheap foreign steel, labor had gained even more ground and more, uh, you know, leverage uh, on management in the 59 strike. Uh, I equate it to a mirage uh, that the steel industry, I think, failed to heed some of the warnings uh, that, uh, you know, that were there to be seen. Vietnam War comes along and you can sort of push that down the road, kick the can down the road a little bit. Now, the third major flood that you talk about occurred in 1977. Uh, you, you mentioned that on the eve of the flood, Paul Newman's movie Slapshot was playing in the town theater. Uh, what, what was that movie about? What does it reveal about Johnstown at that time? <laughs> it, was, it was actually filmed in Johnstown. Have you seen it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, it, it captures the, sort of the setting of Johnstown, a rough-and-tumble steel-working community uh, that they love the rough-and-tumble hockey. Uh, and it was playing at the Strand Theater uh, in downtown Johnstown. Uh, it was actually based on someone who had played uh, semi-pro hockey in the city of Johnstown. The, the woman who wrote the screenplay, her brother had played hockey for uh, the Johnstown semi-pro team. Uh, it was playing. Uh, this was, this, there are some parallel similarities between the 1889 flood and the 1977 flood. It was the night of the All-Star game as we're recording this. It's opening day for the Pittsburgh Pirates. But Dave Parker, the uh, Pirates outfielder, uh, was playing in the All-Star game. Many of the people I interviewed remember staying up to see how Parker uh, would fare for the National League in that game. It started raining heavily around 6.30 on uh, the evening of July 19th, 1977. Uh, and uh, flash flood warnings were issued not just for Johnstown, but for a bunch of countries uh, around the area, seven countries. The mayor of the city, uh, Republican Mayor Herb Fuel, uh, he toured the city, and you actually had uh, locations where people had gathered because their homes were underwater or in risk of becoming underwater. They had uh, convened at several different locations, and he visited the Meadowvale School, which was one of those locations, and uh, he would declare the city a disaster area around 2 a.m. Sadly, electricity was out in many areas, so people uh, weren't aware uh, of the flood. Similarly to what had happened in 1889 in Hornerstown, uh, like at the Stone Bridge, there were two fires uh, that uh, oil uh, had spilled on the water and caught fire. Uh, so that was similar uh, to what happened in 1889. And then there was another dam break in the community of Tanneryville, which was very much a working class community. There was a dam that sat above Tanneryville, the Laurel Run Dam. It had been built in 1869, uh, so actually before the 1889 flood to help the uh, city meet its water needs, and 
similarly to the concerns that Daniel Morrell had for the South Fork Dam, various inspectors had looked at the Laurel Run Dam as recently as 1970, uh, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, had classified it uh, as a high hazard dam. Well, that dam broke apart on the morning, uh, around 2.30 a.m. on July 20th, that dam gave way. And uh, many of the victims, uh, 86 people would be killed in the 1977 Johnstown flood. 34 of those people were from Tanneryville, and there was one housing unit there, the Solomon Run Homes. Uh, that was, uh, most of those 34 uh, came from that unit. I actually, uh, since my book came out in October, I delivered a presentation uh, in Blair County, and uh, it's been really fascinating. Uh, in, in the county I live in, Indiana County, which sits next to Cambria, uh, two women uh, who spoke up there were in the 1936 flood, and they shared some of their stories. When I spoke at Blair County, uh, speaking of the Laurel Run Dam, uh, they were counselors uh, at a camp, uh, Camp Wapsanonic, uh, which is a mountain, Camp Wapsie for short, and uh, they had two boys who were from Tanneryville uh, the morning after, July 20th, and uh, they had to let those boys know, we don't know the status of your family. They tried to reach them, they couldn't reach them. Uh, they, we don't know the status of your community. Uh, but that dam, which had been recognized by inspectors as uh, a high hazard dam, Again, a lot of parallels with the South Fork Dam. Uh, it gave way. Uh, and the other uh, uh, thing that happened in Tanneryville, which we talked a little bit about, uh, was the damage, the power of water. Uh, the isolated, uh, Tanneryville was isolated by and large. You couldn't get vehicles in because the roads had been washed out. When the Laurel Run Dam gave way, uh, again, you see just big chunks of, of blacktop uh, and bridges, uh, non-traversable. And so the only access in the early uh, hours of July 20th, well, even into the uh, following day, uh, was by helicopter into Tanneryville to try to find out what went on. And actually, a lot of the news outlets, the Johnstown Tribune Democrat newspaper, uh, they, they didn't appreciate the magnitude of it. Uh, they didn't even know during the, the morning of July 20th the severity of what had happened uh, in Tanneryville. And, and as I mentioned, 86 people uh, lost their lives in the 1977 flood. Uh, more than 7,000 people uh, were displaced and uh, some eerie similarities to what had happened in the great flood of 1889. Now, one of the key figures uh, in Johnstown for many years was Congressman John Murtha. Uh, what was his role in the community there? He was actually, he was speaking uh, down in D.C. Uh, at a military school on the morning of July 20th. And, uh, they notified him uh, of what had happened. Uh, he asked for a helicopter and was granted one by the federal government. He flew back to Johnstown that morning, sort of used the Johnstown airport as a, uh, a base of operations. Uh, and, and he receives high marks, Phil, by uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, people I talked to, uh, and uh, oral histories uh, that I researched uh, in conjunction with this project for helping get Johnstown back on its feet. Uh, Mirtha uh, would uh, bring business to Johnstown. Uh, he was certainly, in 1977, he was someone that uh, helped get the cleanup going, but I also think he understood uh, 
the crystal ball, seeing where the steel industry was headed. He, the longtime congressman from 74 uh, to 2010, and uh, he used some of his political clout and influence to bring some federal money uh, to Johnstown. Uh, but by and large, and I write about this a, a bit in the epilogue, uh, a lot of the projects that, that Congressman Murtha brought back really never took root. Uh, they were not uh, long-term sustainable employment opportunities. And of course, he died suddenly, uh, surgery that uh, was relatively routine uh, in 2010. And, uh, you talk about a city that was hit with a lot of different blows uh, with the demise of the steel industry uh, with obviously Mother Nature. Uh, a lot of that federal money dried up uh, with the passing of Mirtha a little more than a decade ago. So you mentioned the demise of the steel industry. And in previous floods, 1889, you had said earlier that they were eager to get back to get the mills back up and running. Uh, was it the same for the 1977 flood? No, it was very much fits and starts. Uh, so after Eugene Grace, you had a number of relatively short-termed CEOs, uh, Art Homer, uh, Donald Trotline, Walter Williams, uh, Curtis Barnett. You had a man named Louis Foy who was uh, from the area. He was from Shanksville, Pennsylvania, which is not far. Uh, well, that's actually where Flight 93 went down. Uh, Louis Foy was the CEO of Bethlehem at the time of the 1977 flood, uh, was someone who grew up on a farm in the area, uh, was now obviously in Allentown living and, and running Bethlehem Steel. Uh, he wanted to be the hometown uh, CEO who makes good and helps keep the community. And so it went back and forth uh, to answer your question. Louis Foy announced, hey, we're going to stay. Uh, he pleaded for relaxation of some of the pollution standards. Both the EPA uh, and the DER gave Bethlehem Steel, a temporary stay on meeting regulations because of the, uh, because of, uh, the flood. Uh, he, uh, Johnstown was working on a basic oxygen furnace, uh, which was a $70 million project. Uh, and uh, initially he promised that, that was going to, uh, they were going to stick with that project. Ultimately, he would backtrack uh, on that. So it was back and forth. I think Foy eventually saw that this was not going to be an industry uh, that was going to sustain itself flood or no flood. And, and interesting, interestingly, 1977, you could argue that's a year that will live in infamy for Bethlehem Steel specifically. You had the flood in Johnstown, obviously, and there was millions and millions of dollars in damage to Bethlehem's holdings there. Uh, but you also had at their plant, uh, in Buffalo, the Lackawanna plant, you had a three-day blizzard in January of 77 that cost them roughly $10 million. And then a week later, in January of 77, in a Pittsburgh, uh, in a Bethlehem Steel coal mine in Pittsburgh, uh, there was a fire that burned for several weeks. Not only couldn't they extract coal from that mine for their operation, they had to buy their coal from other mines. Uh, and actually, there was a smaller fire uh, in Mine 33 near Evansburg. Bethlehem's losses in 77 alone it was the, uh, the, the most catastrophic year economically for Bethlehem, $448 million in losses. And so Foy wanted to do good by his hometown, but he ultimately saw that that was not going to be doable. He uh, ended up 
bailing on the $70 million basic oxygen furnace that would have gotten Johnson in compliance with the stricter environmental regulations. And uh, long story short, it went back and forth. Uh, in the end, Johnstown's uh, Bethlehem operations consolidated under a division called the Bar Rod and Wire Division in 1982. And people saw, uh, the labor force in Johnstown saw that if we don't give back some of what we've been able to, uh, the ground we've been able to gain through the labor movement, it's going to disappear altogether. Uh, serious concessions that were unlike uh, any that, uh, at least in Bethlehem, in, in Bethlehem Steel, uh, any labor group had organized before they gave a lot back to management, organized under the Bar Rod and Wire Division in 1982, uh, but uh, it just wasn't meant to be. Uh, by December of 1993, Bethlehem had sold uh, its remaining Johnstown Holdings to a company called Moultrip Steel Products and pulled out of that city altogether. Well, we've been talking about the book Disastrous Floods and the Demise of Steel in Johnstown. Pat Farbaugh, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.